Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together out loud, chapter by chapter. First Samuel chapter 13. The perspective here seems to shift. We get more of a summary, uh, kind of more of a bird's eye overview of the early years of Saul's reign. And with that shift, there are some questions, uh, just kind of basic questions about um, okay, when exactly is this? Uh, he lived for one year and then became, what exactly does that mean? Uh, you know, there's, there's these different descriptions of, uh, the things that he did that you need to line up with what we've read so far. And this is really, I think the first chapter where you very clearly get a description of what Saul has done wrong. Um, in particular, he doesn't wait for Samuel long enough and goes on without him. And so you get this sense of uh, we're kind of improvising things and figuring stuff out, and it's not quite right as far as God is concerned. So uh, a really an interesting turn here in the narrative of King Saul. And joining us today, this is uh, this is nice. We haven't had uh, this guest on in like something like two months or something. So we've got the Reverend Dr. Alfonso O. Espinosa, my fellow pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Irvine, California. Good morning. Good to have you back. And uh, yeah, like I was saying, I mean, it's a, there's a few different questions that come up trying to line this kind of different perspective up with everything else, huh? Indeed, and thank you for having me, AJ, uh, Pastor AJ. It's great to be here. Uh, always great to... Uh, to serve and to minister to God's people with you and to encourage each other in the one true faith. It's a fascinating chapter, as you're saying. It's always, I seem to always say that about God's word. It's always a fascinating chapter, uh, but indeed uh, much to be learned, much to be gathered, even in its general presentation, as you said. And um, it be upon which the church remembers Cyprian of Carthage, Pastor I'm, I'm having a hard time hearing you, actually, right now. I don't know if it's if that's me or if that's okay. uh, something that just happened. Can you go back to the way it... Better. Uh, I don't know if you had something with your connection maybe changed. Well, I took it off of speaker, um, seeing if this will Oh, help. yeah, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't don't put it on speaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot, it's a lot better yeah. with uh, without the speaker. Okay, can can you hear me now? Yep, yep. We're good. We're good Am for I right okay? now. Okay. Our... Okay. Okay. Go. Yeah. Go ahead. So so yeah, I was just saying that uh, always a fascinating uh, uh, chapter in, in God's word, but this one in particular, as we uh, look at uh, this particular uh, rebellion by Saul and uh, reminiscent of the very first rebellion and the ongoing rebellion of a sinful nature against God. Um, yeah. Great. Great to be here. Um, I'd love to well, pray. And, and you had mentioned, you, you, you're starting to mention, um, I think, but before the cell phone was, was cutting out a little bit, uh, the Cyprian of Carthage, I think. Yep. 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 Yes. The 16th of September today, uh, we remember and thank God for his servant, Cyprian of Carthage, Carthage a pastor mm -hmm. and martyr in the third century. And uh, he was uh, known for many uh, theological works, including his treatise on the unity of the Catholic Church and 
where he teaches that no one can have God as father who does not have the church as mother and that there is no salvation outside of the Church of Christ. Sounds sounds like radical stuff, but completely true, because the only way we are unified uh, into Christ and know God as our Heavenly Father is through the Word and the sacraments of the Holy Church, which are given to us to create faith and to unite us to Christ. So, um, you know, he was bold in teaching that, and we say uh, a hearty amen to his uh, divine teaching. But um, towards the end of his life, he was among those who stood against the emperor uh, Valerian and uh, refused to renounce the faith. And he was beheaded. And uh, it's recorded that his last words were, Deo gratias, thanks be to God, as he stripped off his own clothes and put on the blindfold and stretched out his neck for the sword. And there is a special prayer dedicated to him this day, if if you don't mind me sharing it with your audience. Yeah, please go ahead. Let us pray. Almighty God, you gave your servant Cyprian boldness to confess the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, before the rulers of this world, encouraged to die for the faith he proclaimed. Give us strength always to be ready with a reason for the hope that is in us and to suffer gladly for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Oh, you know, and that's uh, it's pretty interesting how I, I think this uh, what you were just saying about Cyprian kind of lines up in a few ways, really pretty nicely with our chapter here. Um, both the idea of standing up to the to the emperor in witness to the truth of God. I mean, you definitely have uh, Samuel having to come and actually confront Saul here in this chapter. So certainly not the first time or rather, certainly not the last time that Samuel's going to have to confront uh, the king, uh, and, and this is kind of going to be a setting a precedent of uh, a tradition that goes all the way down to, to John the Baptist, and then you know later than that. Um, and then I think the, another aspect of it, too, just like you were saying, you know, this kind of seemingly radical exclusivity, um, I, I think that's also kind of a little bit of a theme here, because I think that as you're reading First Samuel 13, one of the things that comes out is, you know, I mean, I think that so far we've had a pretty good view of Saul. Saul, you know, it's, uh, you know, he's humble. He, he's a, a servant of God. He, you know, whatever God is giving him to do, it's like, okay, that, that's what we're going to do. Um, so I think we're pretty sympathetic with Saul at this point. Uh, and, and then when, when Samuel admonishes him, we kind of feel like, well, I mean, Samuel, I mean, come on. I mean, you were late. I mean, you know, he, he, I mean, better to have some sacrifices than nothing. So uh, that, that kind of exclusivity that the priesthood is claiming there, right, can, I think, similarly kind of seem radical to us. So I think there's, like, uh, some cool connections, actually. Amen. Uh, absolutely. And um, uh, on, on a broader scale, uh, we are being reminded once again that while God is, is king of, of, of both kingdoms, um, the, uh, the, the, the kingdom that um, Samuel represents in this phenomenal ministry, I'm, I'm sure you've been elaborating upon this quite a bit uh, so far in the first 12 chapters leading to today, but uh, as, as far as I know, he is the only one in Holy Scripture who is identified as a judge, a priest, and a prophet, 
Um, Christ, Christ, mm-hmm. Christ is, is foreshadowed um, immensely in the ministry of Samuel. And um, yes, uh, kings come from God, uh, and they serve God and glorify God, but they, they are not over um, the prophet, the priest, and the judge. Um, they have to mind their place. And um, so we are, we are reminded of this. Um, well, the two kingdoms are side by side. There is a greater kingdom, uh, one that is not in accord with the power of this world. And we see that in spades coming out here as Samuel must correct and admonish uh, King Saul. And, and we we'll want to talk more about... Uh, there's, yeah, there's a couple different, I think, Christological dimensions that we can look at and uh, talk more about, uh, the, as you were saying, the, the, these different offices and what the significance of how they can overlap and how they maybe shouldn't overlap. But uh, before we get into that, we should go ahead and just, just get the chapter read here before us. Anything that you want to call out in terms of uh, something that we should be recalling from context or um, any uh, particular terms or play, there's a lot of place names in this chapter. Um, any, anything worth just pointing out before we go ahead and give it a read through? Well, I, I think it's extremely significant to um, appreciate the word waiting. Uh, when uh, Saul is finally waiting with the people of Israel on Samuel, it has uh, religious connotations. It, it's uh, the cause of hope, the, the word in the Hebrew. Um, and and uh, this gets me back to what you're saying about describing uh, Saul, uh, we, we see the good in him. And, uh, you, you know, in the overall story of, of, of Saul, uh, the Spirit of the Lord being upon him and the Spirit of, Spirit of the Lord uh, being removed from him, we, we see the good and we see the bad. Uh, he, is, he, is the, um, he, he is the epitome of Simul Yusus Epicator in terms of spiritual interactions that come out of him. Uh, so when he's good, he's good, and when he's bad, he's bad. Um, and, and he's waiting. He's, he's this word depicts, a, I, I think, a, a real waiting to honor the, the ministry of Samuel. Uh, so, so the waiting is important there. Um, I'm also fascinating, uh, fascinated by the one who is to come after him, a, a man after God's own heart, uh, referring to David, uh, of course. Um, and, of course, the overall uh, depiction of... Um, what is going on here in, in the military scene that also brings up uh, blessed Jonathan and uh, his significance to, to this story. And as he will later connect to David in, in a very, very good way. Um, but, but there's lots there. So uh, amen to just delving in. All right, let's go ahead and read then. First Samuel chapter 13 here in the English standard version. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 
30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, they, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about six hundred men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed at Geba, in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. Another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle, and the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, thanks, thanks be to God. Um, this, uh, so I, I think there's like kind of two two things that are kind of standing out to me. Um, actually, you know what? The, the last thing you said kind of came out a little funny. Why, why don't um, you just? Uh, hang up really quick and we'll try to reconnect you just uh, really fast here to see if we can get a good cell phone connection. Sometimes these cell phone connections can be a little, a uh, little, a little bit tricky here. Um, but so as you're reconnecting here, uh, just kind of reflecting on, on these, uh, a couple, a couple thoughts I had, I mean, so the, on the one hand, you've got the actual battle situation going on, right? Cause there, there's another sense of, urgency there's and this happened earlier too with uh nahash the ammonite right 
and that that was really interesting in First Samuel uh, twelve that we saw last time. That it seemed that you know there's this this fear. Uh oh, here comes the Ammonites, and and we we've got this uh, we've got this real fear, and so it's like, hey, we 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 have to have a king. That's the only way this is going to work. Um, and so this idea of we're afraid, and so we demand to do things this way because you know it's the fear response, right? We're like. Uh, you know, I have to have this or, or else, you know, I mean, how are we going to survive? And so it seems like something similar is happening here that that Saul is letting his fear dictate his behavior. And so in response to this fear of the, the Philistines that he has to go out against, he's like, you know what? I have to make sure this sacrifice happens. If I don't have this sacrifice, um, I'm not going to win doesn't matter if Samuel's not here. I mean, I would have preferred that he would have been here, but you know what? I'm just going to do this and make sure it happens because we've got to win the battle. That's what counts. And, and, and so in that way, I think that's just that kind of overarching thing. And, and you know, the way the battle is described that they're, <laughs> they're going to go off the battle with uh, plowshares and, and uh, you know, ox goads. I mean, this, this is just kind of really interesting on that level. Um, but, but then I think the other thing too is kind of trying to just figure out uh, like how this lines up with with Saul big picture as as a ruler because uh, on the one hand uh, the chapter at least in the English Standard Version seems to depict this as uh, very early on like you know just maybe two years into his reign or something like that but when Samuel talks it's like we're already talking about the end of your reign <laughs> so uh, yeah I, I think that th- those are the kind of the two things that jump out at me this kind of like uh, this fear disobedience dynamic that seems to be repeating, um, and then trying to situate this in the, the bigger context. So I I don't know what, what are, what are some of the threads that, that stand out to you, or if you have any kind of, uh, kind of big picture, uh, reactions to, to those things? Well, well, yeah. And the, the, the big picture is, um, I had mentioned it earlier. Uh, you have a, uh, a, a representation of of the garden in Genesis. Um, sin is committed after a rationalization takes place, be it a yeah. rationalization that is sprung by desire or sprung by fear or sprung by any kind of independent insistence of our being yeah. separate from God and claiming an independence apart from God and being dominated by our passions and our thoughts and our rationalizations. And then, and, and then the confrontation in Genesis is, is repeated. What have you done? What have you done? And, and now, yeah. secondly, uh, the, this what have you done is an opportunity for confession. So part three, and it's a replay of Genesis again, part three. Well, what yeah. I've done is let me give you all of my excuses. I have really, yeah. really good reasons for doing this, God. Um, so, t- Samuel, let me explain to you. Okay, this, this had to be taken care of. This had to be addressed. Etc. 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 Listen to me. I've got the basis cover covered, and I have excused my sin. So, so this is a very general thing here. And and um, you had asked me early on about other things that stand out, and looking forward to getting to the particular sacrifices. As you know, there are many sacrifices in the Old Testament, but in this particular context, in this chapter, we emphasize uh, Saul bringing forth the burnt offering and the peace offering, which are zeroed in on access to God and acceptance by God. And so Saul is so driven for his own success, he wants these things at all costs. And, and, and not according to God's way, but according to 
his way. So he goes beyond his appointed power in, in doing this. So it's this broad sweep that we see that mirrors uh, early Genesis is extremely important. And as for the, you know, the, the, the seeming side-by-side nature of the beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry, the Lutheran Study Bible uh, brings out this, I, this, this concept that it's a commentary on the, the fact that there's this, this brevity that's attached to the details of Saul's ministry is in and, of, in and of itself in terms of historical chronology and, and, and what's devoted uh, and dedicated to Saul is, is a commentary on a ministry that was severely compromised. Uh, David gets much more attention, and, and it represents a greater blessings that flow through David as opposed to Saul. Well, and that is interesting how in the broader um, story of salvation, how there is just so much more emphasis on David. Um, it, it reminds me that uh, I, one of our listeners yesterday was asking about, uh, well, I mean, it, it's just so interesting that you, you do get Saul the Benjaminite as the first king of Israel. You, you don't you don't see it coming, right? I mean, there's, there's these uh, prophecies and promises of God uh, and, and the patriarchs Early on, you mentioned Genesis, right? Um, like in Genesis um, and, and other places in the Pentateuch, where everything seems to be foreshadowing the the rule and authority of Ephraim, son of Joseph, and Judah, the one who inherited the firstborn right of his father Israel, um, and, and you know particularly, of course, that that's the, we have the one prophecy that we always think of, you know, and the, the scepter will never depart from you, Judah. And, and so, you know, the question was like, so what's what's going on here with this, you know, why, why does God pick Benjamin? Is, isn't he supposed to be picking um, Judah? Is, wasn't that the promise, right? Or, or at least Ephraim on, on some level, right? Uh, and and I think that what you're just saying there about this idea, this, this brevity that Saul himself— <laughs> This is this is sort of interesting. Is is kind of like the improvised weapons at the end of this chapter, that um, yeah. in in some way you know they're going into battle and, and it's really interesting the way that there's this little detour that uh, is just so interesting just in terms of the story that you know back I guess back in these times like the Philistines I guess had like a monopoly on blacksmiths. And so if, if the Israelites wanted to use, um, I mean, do, do any kind of smithing, like they had to go to the Philistines. And so, of course, when they're at war with the Philistines, this is problematic. Uh, and, and so there they are going into war with like sharp farming equipment, you know, um, but that in some ways that that's what Saul is. He's kind of sharp farming equipment. I mean, in fact, he was out there plowing the, the fields with like with his oxen, right? When he like gets the call from Samuel, and so I, I I wonder if there's kind of something more to that this this picture right that that Saul it's like he's kind of more like this improvised farm farming tool that God kind of concedes to the people of Israel because they're demanding this king, but that that was kind of ahead of God's timing, like Saul was ahead of Samuel's timing here. Yeah, and and you're getting into the details uh, about Saul's inspiring me again to back up bigger picture. Um, the 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 seeming heartbreak, you know, our, our unchangeable God uh, is presented sometimes this way, 
um, as being um, saddened that his people going way before this were um, well not too much not 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 too far before this but before this uh, demanding a king and uh, God's like um, I thought I was your king and uh, mm-hmm. I'm the one who have done I I have done all of this for you but you want a king like the surrounding nations. And of course, this, this reminds us of why the saying is so pertinent to this day. You know, be, be careful what you wish for. Right. And uh, they, they wished for a compromise. They wanted a compromise. So they got a compromise. And, and as holy as, as, the, as the, the, the account of Benjamin is, has been among the 12 in the special place he had among the brothers originally, um, you are departing already from the one who would lead to the Lion of Judah. Um, if you want compromise, you'll have compromise. I will let you be like the surrounding nations, and I will give you a king. And, and, and true, on the one side, in terms of what God thought and what God chose, the, the one plowing, the one working in the field, as you were eloquently saying, is also the one from the standpoint of man who is extremely impressive, uh, the way that Saul is described, he is a specimen. Uh, when people see him as a man in his stature, in his presence, he's like, whoa, you know. But this is man's yeah. perspective and not God's. But it's got compromise written all over it from the very beginning. Be careful what you wish for. Oh, certainly. Yeah, we've been seeing that theme uh, throughout. Careful what you wish for on many levels in First Samuel. Uh, we'll keep chewing on that. Time for our break, but everyone will be back soon. Thy strong word looking at First Samuel chapter 13. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The prophet Isaiah chapter 55 verses 10 and 11. Begin and conclude your day with the word that accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent. Morning prayer at 7 a.m. and evening prayer at 5 p.m. Weekdays on KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. The broadcasts of morning prayer and evening prayer are underwritten by Lutherans for Life. everybody to thy strong word i'm pastor aj espinosa we're looking at first samuel chapter 13 joined by our guest today the reverend dr alfonso o espinosa senior pastor at saint paul's lutheran church in irvine california if you've got a question for us and you're listening live you can join the conversation 
1-800-730-2727, or if you're in St. Louis, 314-821-0850. You can also send an email to KFUO at KFUO.org. Had some uh, email questions come in just before the break. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll take a look at some of those, um, some some of these just kind of asking more uh, I, I mean, I, I think I'm reading these questions as kind of like, you know, sympathetic which, which to Saul, which I think is um, pretty pretty fair. We're, we're kind of set up to be sympathetic at this point in the narrative. But so kind of understanding, you know, what, what, what are Saul's errors here? You know, was he really at fault when he, um, you know, makes the sacrifice or, uh, you know, with the attack? So there's, we'll have to get into some of those things. Also, if you've got a question, you can uh, hop on the live stream, facebook.com slash AJ Espinosa. Uh, and the question there is uh, just asking, okay, what is the deal with verse one and <laughs> trying to figure out the years on you know his reign over Israel and, and where this is? Because if uh, depending actually on what version of the ESV you even have, you'll see that the 2007 uh, ESV is significantly different from what we have here in the 2011 and since then ESV. So uh, those are some good questions that we've got. Um, but uh, yes, coming coming back to to where we were, I think I think just before the break we were um, we were just kind of you know again kind of taking a step back, looking at this, looking at the big picture again. But um, I I don't know. Can, can we can we maybe take a look at some of these specific questions and particularly at the beginning of the chapter? figure out okay what what is what is going on with this that lived for i mean even if you take it lived for one year and then became i mean what what's going on (laughs) well we we just you know we we have something similar to what's going on at at verse five with thirty thousand chariots it it could very well be three thousand chariots and yeah um remember there there was a process uh were involved and uh, there were mistakes made with some of these details. Now, to, to come out and say that, it sounds like you know, the, the utmost in, in a scan, scandalism. Yeah. But, but we have to back up and always remind ourselves that copious error about these details of, of years and, and units, nothing shakes the foundation of the articles of the saving faith. Nothing. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, we, we deal with these copious situations, but don't worry. Take a deep breath. It's okay. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, and that's that's really what I think we need to say for, for that one. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that when you when you boil it all down, that's uh, that is what we're getting at. And I think that part of um, part of what we're doing here, too, is we, we have to stop and appreciate the difference between the old Testament and the new Testament, you know, like the, the new Testament, I mean, we have to really appreciate this, you know, written, you know, about 2000 years ago, like, but also over the span of, right. Like, uh, not very long at all. I mean, like over a span of, I mean, like 50 years, uh, like, you know, ish or something, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe a little bit more than yeah. that. Um, such a, a different, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Such a different situation with the Old Testament, right? I mean, that that there are, there are parts of this that that would go back, you know, a thousand years even before that, and that this thing was written over the course of 
you know, uh, centuries. And so appreciating that um, makes you feel like a little bit more sympathetic to like what you were pointing out about verse five, right? Where is it 30,000 chariots or 3,000 chariots? Like, well, in Hebrew, the only difference between those two would have been the M on the end of the word. <laughs> Just, you know, is it, is it yeah. shalosh or is it shaloshim? And, and, and so it's like, you know, wow, if, you know, if you've got something and uh, the only mistake you make is like this one letter M over all that time and space, I mean, that's, you're, you're doing pretty good. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I think kind of appreciating that. Also, I think uh, the kind of the converse side is the, the fact that we're we're kind of saying, oh, actually, right, uh, we should expect some errors because it is so old. Um, I mean, is affirming actually the antiquity and and thus the authenticity of the texts. And it's not that they were just made up later with kind of like you know nice and neat and uh, ready answers and, and and no problems, right? Like this is what you would expect of something that's recording real events with such antiquity. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's these sorts of things that are markers for reliability. Uh, if it's too neat and tidy, that's when we should get suspicious. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, right. And, and we see this everywhere. And we, we, we see it in one of my favorite examples. You know, you were comparing the two Testaments, but even in the New Testament, you have the four Gospels, and, and they're very, right. very unique perspectives. And there are things that each evangelist picks up that the other didn't necessarily pick up. It doesn't mean that they're contradicting. It means they're complementary. And when we, when we encounter these things that might seem to us as being a little deficient, actually you are doing exactly what you just described, Pastor. We, we, are, we, we are seeing the marks of authenticity, and it should make us feel better, better about the situation. Yeah. Amen. But I, I, so, I love so that, then... that other question. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm just saying, I just love, love, love the other question. And one of the things that I, I've always heard from you coming out of, of your ministry on Thy Strong Word, we, we are never taking this pietistic posture that, you know, oh, here we get to pick on a real sinner. You know, this, right. now we have encountered a real loser uh, in, in right. the history of, 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 of the church and of man. Um, and so we're going to make sure we really rub it in in Saul's face. Not at all. <laughs> In fact, yeah. we, we should be grateful that that God puts in this, this record of Saul because he mirrors us. We, mm -hmm. we are no better. We, we get to read about what we do when we read about Saul. And, and the fact of right. the matter, the rest of the story is also true. God loves Saul. God loved Saul as much as he loves anybody. Um, at the same time, we have to point out why there are, in fact, sins that are taking place. And you can talk about his, his character, you can talk about his integrity, you can talk about you know, his lack of patience or his desire for power, negative, positive. But one of the things that comes out here is God is teaching, again, there are offices, there are stations, and you can't dabble with these things. Husbands are husbands. Men are husbands, women are wives, or mothers, fathers. There are priests, there are policemen, there are judges, there are kings, there are bishops. And he was a king of Israel. And the king of Israel had a responsibility to honor the prophet that God sent to him. Period. Yeah. 
And yeah, he, he, yeah. Look, he was disobedient. Well, so are we. <laughs> so, so are we. But it's important to point it out and to confess our own sin as we read these things. Well, I, and I, I, I agree with how you've laid it out there that um, it, it's this is this is not presented as like wow, like look at like what a failure King Saul was, and he was just one of the worst. Like, that's just not really the presentation. It's it's you know, he was a real person. Um, and, and that's, and that's kind of like what you have actually set up at the beginning of the chapter where it does seem like actually, so I, this is interesting that the ESV changed this, but, um, I think they were closer to, um, what was going on in the 2007 uh, version, which was that it, it seems like the Hebrew text is, they're saying, you know, he was X many years old, but like the, the year got lopped off somehow. Um, which, yeah. You know, as uh, as we were kind of talking about last time, it's actually pretty easy to have happen. Um, in, yeah. in fact, the one of the things I think is pretty interesting is that in the uh, Septuagint, you actually have that he was 30 years old. Um, and then I think it's like in the, is it like one of the, um, like the Syriac? Uh, he's like 21 or something like that. So like other versions actually had, um, numbers here. It's just in the Masoretic text that, that the number is missing. It, it's not too hard though to see how it could have um, gotten gotten mixed up or, or left out though. Um, especially when you, and, and this is something I don't want to spend too much time on, but to appreciate that there is this difficulty of, hey, look, they didn't have like Arabic numerals, right? Like the thing that we just take for granted, like you know, zero, like a circle for zero, a straight line for one, uh, two, and so on. Uh, they did not have those, and instead they they used just spelling out whole words, or they would use uh, individual Hebrew letters to represent whole numbers, and and so this this is challenging then because uh, if the text is at all you know damaged in any way, uh, something that that looks like it could be a name. Um, could actually be a number, <laughs> and something that looks like it might be a number might have actually just been a word. So uh, it, it's actually kind of kind of tricky in that regard, and especially with with the name Saul itself. Um, the the last character of Saul, uh, the, the L, can mean thirty, right? So it's like, oh, could it actually have like just meant like you know Saul was thirty, but like you know something got just you know, mixed up there. Um, so anyways, without getting into to too much speculation on that, um, it's, uh, helpful to look at, uh, Steinman's commentary for the fuller discussion of this, but you know, he basically thinks that, you know, you really can't take either one of these, uh, years that you have in the ESV here, uh, like with, with too much, um, certainty, uh, that, that really, the, the point is actually not that he's just been reigning for just a couple of years, but, but rather, um, this is kind of getting to a critical moment in what would have been a longer period of time um, that this is kind of being picked out as an exemplary moment or, a, or, a, or mm, I mean, to, to put it this way, like fateful moment uh, in, in the sense of like the course of things are, is about to change. I, I think you just hit the nail on the head. Um, and, and I think the giveaway in terms of background is that he has a son in Jonathan, uh, whose name means God given just, an incredible depiction of Jonathan, but he's an officer in the army. Yeah. So, so he's at least 20, at least. Yeah. And right. I, I, I think to, 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 we can logically 
you know, um, extrapolate and say that now Saul is, is quite mature. He's probably in his 40s, and, and he's in yeah. a place now. He's solid. He's solid. He, he knows. He's wise. He's learned. He's experienced, and he's thoroughly the king. And he, he's come yeah. to this place where, you know, he should have all his marbles together. But but this happens. The, the, the flesh uh, takes over in him. And again, we're not pointing fingers, but we're we're taking this and applying it to ourselves to help us yeah. confess this morning once again. We return to our baptism. A- Amen. So let, let's take a look then um, at his specific actions here and see if we can uh, try to make some applications then to ourselves, as you were saying. So so there's a situation here where, okay, uh, there's there's a confrontation coming. He takes, um, you know, a certain number of men, um, and he he goes out uh, with, with his son, like you were saying, like who's like an, who's an officer in the in the army. He sends the rest home, right? So it's like you know he's he's picked out, you know, what he wants to do. We get in verse three that um, Jonathan, um, and, and there's actually and we're seeing this in the next chapter too. Jonathan's depicted as, I mean, being very successful. Um, in, in battle um, and very able, and and so uh, yeah, so you know you've got the, the situation where okay, we're we're mustering the troops, we've we've got the right numbers, we got we got the right position and all this, but uh, then there's this situation where uh, he's waiting for Samuel, you know, and, and everyone's it says like trembling before this, so it's like it's it's presented as scary, right? The, the chariots and everything else, the chariots are like this big scary thing that we're all scared of in Joshua, but they have chariots. Um, so, so there, there's the kind of situation, the setup, but then there's this, this waiting thing. So, um, okay. So I want, I want to ask this question, but I, I do see out of the corner of my eye here that we do have a, a call. This might not be a question about what we're talking about right now, but maybe, maybe we can sneak this in and come back to this, uh, waiting question in just a minute. Uh, so we have James on the phone with a question about the, Deuteronomist. So you're kind of a historiographical question here, but James, good morning. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. Look, I'd like to know, um, mm. uh, what, what kind of, uh, you know, what is a Deuteronic history and yeah. what do they teach at the seminary about it? How do they interpret mm-hmm. those particular texts, uh, and how the Deuteronomist rationalize, interpret these events? Because it looks like when we look at this bird's eye view, yeah. or overview, the perspective seems to make Saul the fall guy, and the weakness for this uh, for the fledgling nation of Israel. And um, if if you believe that God has done all the miracles and brought you up out of Egypt and delivered you so many times when they are actually, and I think that's what uh, the judges and the kings are leading up to, when they actually are banished to a faraway land and amalgamated and Persianized, hmm. when they look back, could they be, could this, could the psychology, uh, let me see if I can say this right, could the psychology of a captive priesthood hmm. want to place blame on a king or on the kings instead of their own wickedness and uh, faithlessness to their God. So uh, I'd like to, to kind of yeah. in the context of that, yeah, I'd yeah. like to ask the questions. Uh, did, did 
Samuel set Saul up to fail by not showing up on time and then yeah. blaming him through his office. Uh, is that the interpretation of the Deuteronomist? Mm-hmm. And I'll hang up on this. You know, the, the, that's, a great, that's a great question. And, and you know, the, the, the JEDP theory, which places special emphases in all these traditional perspectives, including the Deuteronomist per- perspective, is 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 dri- is driven by sociological political agendas, and so you, you you can't depend on the bare word of God because there's always this manipulation behind the scenes going on. And and what I'd like to get back to is that Saul is not the fall guy. Adam's the fall guy, and and because Adam's the fall guy, we're all the fall guy. And and you talk about you know, uh, how we can possibly perceive God setting up. Well, God is always testing. Yeah, Samuel said seven days. But the more important thing that Samuel said was, wait for me. <laughs> yeah. And, and when we wait, the, the point here, and I mentioned this before in the introduction, that this waiting is a religious concept. Those who wait upon the Lord renew their strength. It's a waiting in hope. It's an act of faith. And, and if anything was intentional, it was God teaching his people to wait. And by the way, uh, I want to compliment what you were saying earlier, the compliment with the letter E, with what you said earlier about the circumstances with these, the, the militarily superior Philistines. Hmm. They, were also, they were also out severely outnumbered. And, and Saul's yeah. strategy is, is guerrilla, war, guerrilla warfare. He's taking his, his lower numbers to hit garrisons, to hit these smaller pockets of the Philistines. But in the meantime, they have, they have every reason to be afraid. Now, if anything, yeah. God, if God is setting up, he is setting up his own people as he does to this day to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. Look around. We are right now in our world today as Christians in the minority. I don't, I don't take comfort in sociological statistics that Christianity is still the largest world religion on planet Earth. It's, no, thank you. I, I don't derive any comfort from that. We, we are the little flock, and we are being called to wait on the Lord. And everything is against us in terms of what we see, but we are called to trust, and we are called to wait. So uh, Adam was a fall guy. Um, Saul is a descendant of Adam. <laughs> he yeah. He's doing what Adam did, and he's... And we're doing what Saul did, according to the sinful nature. I, I appreciate. I think. I think that you took a, a complex set of questions and and uh, really got to the the heart of it there. Um, you know, I, to to give a little bit of background for anyone who might be listening to what uh, what James was asking about the and a lot of scholarship there, and there and it's not really a it's like a single theory. It's really like a whole like branch or, or school of, of, of different theories. Um, there's certain variations on this, but people talk about, um, uh, scholars anyway, the, the Deuteronomist, which is to say the guy who was behind Deuteronomy, which, you know, you might be hearing that and thinking, well, you mean Moses? Well, so that, that that's the thing, um, from the, the, uh, a large part of the scholarship that exists, there's a, there's a thought that, there was uh, at the very least somebody who came along later who took maybe like the the notes or the the, the writings or, or the traditions that were from Moses, um, but put together the books of the Bible that we know today as Deuteronomy, 
Joshua, Judges, and then maybe actually Samuel and Kings as well. So in, in that perspective, this gets, I think, to what James was getting at. If there was maybe a guy who, who wrote all those sorts of things, right, who just kind of at this earlier stage put these things together, and then maybe later uh, when, when Israel was under captivity— because of the uh, the Babylonians, or maybe because of Persian influence, if maybe at that juncture then you had a a priest who came along and said, "Whoa, you know, like this is terrible," you know, all these kings and like it was the kings that we got into this mess really because of that, and then went and um, you know edited things and kind of inserted their own thoughts and opinions here. So that that that's kind of this uh, one of the takes anyway. That's out there today. So, uh, to the point that that you were just making, Father. Uh, yes, I mean the the that that kind of assumption that oh, like well, well, you know, any text that exists must be the product of competing political interests. I mean, that 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 just has a bunch of assumptions that that we don't share. And while sure, you know, maybe there are different interesting connections between Deuteronomy and First Samuel or, or whatever the case may be. Um, to go so far as to say that, you know, that the priestly group later is going and throwing this stuff in here to like make Kings look bad. You know, that's, that's taking another, that there, there's a leap there, um, that, you know, isn't necessarily founded on evidence. So, 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 so yeah, I, I I like the way that you, you've connected it back to, to Genesis and, and to just, you know, kind of this overall theme of, you know, God, God says, wait. And, and then sinners, uh, God said, God says, don't do it, right? And sinners go ahead. And it, um, remind reminded me while you were talking about um, the promise to Abraham, right? You're gonna you're gonna have a son. You're gonna have descendants yep. as numerous yep. as the stars. And uh, what? Yep. Well, God's taking a long time. God's late, and so he goes to Hagar, right? I mean, so it's just you know, there's uh, th- this stuff just kind of happens throughout the scriptures. Amen. 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 And we stick to the word of the Lord. And I, I was just 10 seconds. I was in uh, London worshiping at St. Paul's Cathedral, and I was brought to tears when I heard the liturgy, the way it was presented, just just so reverential, literally brought to tears. And then the pastor got into the pulpit and began to preach on the Pentateuch and immediately qualified his sermon by saying, Moses didn't write this. And, and so I wept again, but this time for different reasons. Yeah. Um, we, we, in our confession, maintain that God wrote the Pentateuch through Moses, and he spoke through the prophets of old, and he was speaking through Samuel. And uh, this was the word of the Lord. It was clear, and he said, wait. And again, not to pick on Saul. Our flesh doesn't like that word. <laughs> yeah. We want it now. Right now I have a beautiful four-year-old granddaughter and I, I just, I'm, I'm amazed by her faith. Her, her faith is just off the charts. But when the other side comes out, she's so cute. She says, but I want it now. <laughs> and I, and I yeah. smile and I hear her say that. And I go, uh, I, I can relate. I know yeah. what you mean. Right. You know, so this is a problem. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a universal problem that we all feel like uh, or, or we, all, we all relate to and, and feel that tension and and so yes you know so you know sam apparently samuel said hey i'll i'll, be, I'll get there in seven days right but you know also it's really kind of something too um i mean 
it, back in those days, right, traveling from place to place, especially when there's like, you know, military incursions going on, you might be literally like a few days late, you know? So, um, you know, there, right. there is, there is something there about, about Saul just getting, um, antsy and jumping the gun here. And I, I know that you had some thoughts for us about the particular offerings that he was offering, but, um, just with a few minutes left, I think it's, it is something that the, the bottom line being he offer, he puts these offerings forth, not, uh, as he should be. And, and we just know that this is a bad sign, right? Like we, we, we talked about Eli's sons. We talked about, um, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, what happened to them? I mean, they were burned in fire when they offered improper sacrifices. So there's just nothing surprising really in the bigger picture here. When you go and you overstep your place, overstep the role, the vocation that God's given you, we, we should have all seen it coming that Samuel's, uh, verdict was going to be that the reign of Saul was not going to continue through Jonathan. There would be a new dynasty that God himself would establish. Amen. Amen. We, we, uh, you know, I said earlier, you're saying it now, we cannot underestimate offices, vocations, roles, estates. They define our lives. The world looks at that and views it as restrictive it's binding. Right. It cuts my freedom off. And, and, and the irony is this. If we forsake these things, we are cutting freedom off. Because freedom comes from knowing the Lord and walking with a clear conscience and knowing the peace of God that we're doing the right thing in accord with the pleasant, the pleasant lines and pillars and opinions that establish our vocation, our station, our place, live in them. Mm-hmm. So, so pastors, don't, don't be politicians. This is not the time for the church to be, polit- to be about politics. This is high time for the church to be about the church, to give that message of the gospel that's desperately needed. So be prophets, preach the word. And, and so, again, I'm, I'm applying this because I share in Saul's sin. I, I know my inclination. I, I know my ambition. I know my lack of patience. And so this leads me to get on my knees today and to confess my sins and to rise up in the forgiveness of sins and to honor the offices and the estates and the vocations that God has established. Uh, a- amen. Um excellent summary couldn't couldn't get into all the details a lot of questions going on today but thank you so much for really taking a complex uh, set of issues and getting to the heart of things so looking forward to having you on again real soon uh, hopefully sooner than uh, two and a half months but uh but thank you thank you so much again and uh yeah we'll have you on again real soon thank you. Everybody, that was the Reverend Dr. Alfonso O. Espinosa, Senior Pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Irvine, California. Moving on to Chapter 14. Till then, I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. Peace. You've been listening to Thy Strong Word, produced by the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.